You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of the book by Rudolf Steiner entitled Anthroposophy, a Fragment, A New Foundation for the Study of Human Nature. This is the end of the book. I'm reading the final assorted appendices that I did not attach to the specific chapters before. I know that's slightly confusing. I apologize for it. I'm on page 193 of the book, reading Appendix 3, which is an addendum, as it were, to the last chapter, chapter 10. Appendix 3. This essay is not part of the manuscript of the book, but, in content, it belongs with Chapter 10, The Human Form. Let us imagine that the initial latent human organization, with all the forces it can contain in the physical world, is taken hold of by a force that proceeds directly from the higher spiritual world. This force works from below upward, and would, if working on its own, generate only as much of the human being as bears the I. Let us further imagine that before the thus constituted human being can come about, this force is taken hold of by other forces that work from front to back. Actually, this only means that they allow the first force to continue working but deflect it at a right angle. These other forces proceed directly from the lower spiritual world. They would consist of the contents of the senses of life, self-movement, and balance. Different as these contents may be, they all have in common that they constitute the eye's experiences of its own body in the physical world. In order to experience them, they thus presuppose nothing but one's own bodily existence. They have to be experienced through one's own body in the physical world. They thus work there through the individual bodily nature. The exact opposites of these three senses are the experiences of the senses of concept, tone, and hearing. The experience of the latter senses must be perceived in such a way that within them one's own body is shut out. It is characteristic of these experiences that they are independent of one's own bodily nature. Within these experiences, the I must, therefore, experience something that it can incorporate without deriving it from a bodily existence. At the same time, this something must be independent of the organs that mediate these experiences, independent in the same sense as is the I itself, capital. In concept, tone, and sound, therefore, there is something that joins the bodily nature proper within the physical world in the same way that the eye itself joins this bodily nature. Within human physical nature, latent organs must therefore assert themselves without first having this bodily nature as their prerequisite. These then constitute a particular organism that, within the physical world, 
comes into contact with the contents of the senses of balance, self-movement and life without first coming into contact with the other organs. These contents must therefore work in such a way that they can create life-filled organs in an already existing organism. They are thus forces that within the physical world reveal the nature of the lower spiritual world as the eye itself reveals the nature of the higher spiritual world. The contents of these senses must ray directly into the physical world just as the eye rays into it directly. When these forces thus work on the physical human being inasmuch as it is the bearer of the eye, they will divide this physical human being into two physical members, one of which consists of dispositions for life that go on to form physical organs of life, while the other will form these dispositions for life in such a way that they can become the bearers of experiences in the eye that proceed from the lower spiritual world, just as the eye itself proceeds from the higher. These experiences are, however, directly related to the character of the eye itself, the experience of concept, tone, and sound. If we now imagine that the contents of the senses of life, self-movement, and balance are the forces that work out of the lower spiritual world from back to front to take hold of the original disposition for the physical body as bearer of the eye and impress their own nature upon it, then they would have to imprint into it the organs through which the eye has experiences that thereby bring it into relationship with the lower spiritual world, just as it is in relationship with the higher spiritual world through itself. In their content, sound, tone and concept are such direct revelations of the lower spiritual world, just as the eye is a revelation of the higher spiritual world. Let it now be further imagined that the original disposition for I of the physical human being is not something at rest within itself, but striving from below upward. Then this disposition would be further fashioned by the content lying in the senses of life, balance and self-movement into the experiences of sound, tone and concept through being taken hold of by these contents and being permeated by them in the direction from back to front. If it is assumed that this physical human disposition, thus transformed, were then to be taken hold of from right to left by the, sense, by the contents of the senses of sight, taste, smell, warmth and hearing, then these, obviously, could not act on the disposition if no corresponding dispositions for these senses were present. However, substance itself could, in a way, impinge on this disposition in latent organs, which, through the contents of the senses of balance, self-movement and life, would otherwise develop into organs for concept, tone and sound. The disposition would thereby turn into those organs that experience the outer effect of substance in themselves. This is possible in the physical world 
only when organs of life exist. Now it is clear that the processes of breathing, warming and nourishing are possible only through already existing organs of life. In contrast, the processes of secreting, maintaining, growing and generating call forth I experiences in the physical world that are not influenced by outer processes of this physical world. To the extent that these life processes reveal themselves in the senses of life, self-movement and balance, they only presuppose inner organs of life. Life organs thus exist that incorporate into the eye without influence from outer substance, just as concept, tone and sound incorporate themselves into the eye from the physical world. For the experience of the senses of warmth, sight and taste, outer substances must exist from which the eye disengages its experience. Thus life processes exist that are only sensed inwardly, and experiences of warmth, sight and taste are incorporated into the eye as sensations disengaged from the outer substances. Let it now be assumed that the eye as it lives in the physical world were to be related to the astral world in the same way that it is related to the higher spiritual world through itself and to the lower spiritual world through concept, tone and sound. This can be the case only if it were to have inner life processes within itself that are enkindled by other life processes in such a way that a corresponding outer life process would stimulate an inner life process. It then suffices to recognize generating, growing, maintaining and secreting as those life processes that can also be stimulated from outside and breathing, warming and nourishing as those that can also be stimulated from within. However, at the same time, it would have to be assumed that inner breathing, warming and nourishing are associated with processes that stimulate processes directly in the eye from the outer world, just as sound, tone and concept incorporate them directly into the eye. That means the disposition for eye must be affected by the astral world in a way that disengages life processes from life processes in the same sense that the eye disengages sound, tone and concept, and indeed eye perception from itself. If inner breathing, warming and nourishing were stimulated by an eye that receives directly from the astral world what is disengaged in the experience of taste, sight and warmth from the eye living in the physical world, then such an eye could act as described above. The physical human being would therefore have to encounter an eye from the astral world that by its nature does not exist outside of the experience of taste, sight and warmth. Organs for their perception are needed first, but rather in its nature would itself be inside these experiences. Experiences of taste, sight and warmth would have to be imagined, not in the manner of dead matter, but as being ensouled by this eye that is related to the higher and lower spiritual worlds. Then such an eye could let its inner life 
act on the physical disposition of the human being. And the experiences of taste, sight, and warmth would radiate through this physical disposition from within. If the contents of these sense experiences were then to penetrate the physical disposition for the eye, they could call forth a transformation in those latent organs that bring about the life processes for the senses of balance, self-movement, and life. This would transform these latent organs into organs for generating, growing, maintaining, and secreting. If, therefore, the I were external <clears throat> to the physical human disposition up to a certain point in time, from this point on it could stimulate those organs that are on the way to becoming organs of breathing, warming, and nourishing, to become organs of secreting, maintaining, growing, and generating. If the eye that radiates experiences of taste, sight, and warmth out of the astral world into the physical world is now imagined not to be at rest in itself, but as striving from left to right, then life organs would come about that toward the right would develop as organs of breathing, warming, and nourishing, and toward the left as organs of secreting, maintaining, growing, and generating. Since the living eye, as presupposed, is present in these organs, it would not take the processes of these organs passively, but would dwell in its processes. These would simultaneously be eye experiences. The approach of substance from the left in the organs of nourishing would correspond to maintaining from the right. Warming from the left would correspond to growing from the right. Breathing from the left with generating which would be exhalation, in this case, from the right. Secreting would hold substance in balance from both sides. The reversed processes would have to take place when nourishing, warming, and breathing work from the right, then maintaining, growing, and generating would come about from left to right. Now it is clear that freely hovering experiences of taste, sight, and warmth cannot be present in the physical world to the extent that substance is clearly present which not only serves breathing, warming, and nourishing but can be experienced by an eye through mere contact in pure soul experiences. This is the case when substance itself appears as image sensation. Desire and impulses for movement link up with image sensation. Thus substance can appear only for the sense of smell. Now when the substance impinging outwardly upon the latent physical human being is inwardly faced with desire and the impulse to move, simply its impact onto the latent physical human being, can entail an image sensation. When this image then releases through desire, an inner impulse for movement, then a newly forming breathing organ can be arrested in its formative development. But it can also be led beyond the level of its own forces of formative development. If the impulse for movement is stronger than the desire, it continues to develop into an outer organ of breathing, 
Footnote for an alternate version of the rest of this section, beginning with this sentence, see page 201. I will, in fact, be reading that. I'll tell you when it begins. If the desire is stronger, let me read that again. If the impulse for movement is stronger than the desire, it continues to develop into an outer organ of breathing. If the desire is stronger, then if the desire and the impulse for movement are equally strong, then the image sensation to which it is subjected on its boundary through the impact of substance confronts its own original disposition from below upward. However, the eye that emanates from the astral world no longer works from below upward because it characteristically works on the human being only in directions lying in the horizontal plane. Then the only force that can be in an upward direction would be the force that initially worked out of the higher spiritual world from above downward. And the latent senses and life organs that were formed previously and were not taken hold of in the movement from right to left and left to right because through the position they attained prior to the action of the astral eye, they could not experience any of this eye's influences in the above direction that would have led to their completion. These could only be organs for sound, tone and concept in the process of formation. These organs would not have been completed by the movement from back to front because the force working from above downward restrained their completion. Assuming that only the contents of the senses of balance, self-movement and life are active in the movement indicated here, the only interactions to develop could be between the upward-working, latent physical human being and the eye itself, working from above downward and related to the higher spiritual world. Furthermore, between these latent senses and the eye, which is related to the lower spiritual world, working from front to back, this latter eye could itself then come into interaction with what can be self-experience for the eye in the senses of balance, self-movement and life. Since inner organs are now present in the latent physical human being, so and at this point the text ends. I'm on page 201 and I'm reading an alternate version of page 200. Of, in other words, of what I just read. If the desire and impulse for movement are equally strong, then the image sensation to which it is subjected on its boundary through the impact of substance confronts its own original direction from below upward. What would then come into consideration for the subsequent processes would be the forces of the eye related to the higher and lower spiritual worlds and to the astral world. Furthermore, those of the senses of hearing, tone and concept still in process of formation which have so far resisted the astral eye working in the horizontal plane. Only now do they finally become subject to its influence. They could only develop further through inner life processes that are subjected to the image sensations, desires and impulses for movement of the eye that relates to the astral world in such a way that the completion of the organ occurs up to the limit of what is possible when the movement is completed 
or the completion is held back before it has reached this limit. The first would occur if the effect of the eye related to the astral world on the disposition of the physical human being were to be exhausted in the very moment that the movement from front to back ceases. The second would occur if the effect of this eye persists after the completion of the movement. The first is the case for the organ of hearing, in which the eye's image sensation brings the formation to a close. The second instance is realized in the senses of tone and concept, which are not led up to the surface of the latent physical human organization, but are held back in its interior. They therefore remain capable of development even after cessation of the movement. The interaction between the original direction from above downward of the eye, related to the higher spiritual world, and the striving from below upward of the latent physical human being, now shows itself in the upright stature. In the latter is manifest that the eye itself has the same direction as the latent physical human being, so that the forces working from back to front and front to back, and those working from left to right and right to left, are not the only ones active. Rather, the latent physical human being orients itself upward in the wake of the eye. The processes that have been indicated here correspond to the image of the human form, as well as to the human course of life. And the text ends at this point. I'm on page 203, Appendix 4. These notes have been included in this volume because Rudolf Steiner specifically designated them as belonging to anthroposophy. The perception of another human being is image sensation. As actuality, opposed to this, stands the fulfillment of what the sense of touch gives, so that in this inwardness the reality is given wherein the sense of touch is grounded. In the perception of concept from the outer world, something is given that as actuality in the physical bodily nature has to be regarded as the sense organ of in-formation, in-formation. The footnote ein Dash Bildung in original text. End footnote. The concept lives in this sense organ. Thus a life organ is given the form of the organ of concept from outside. Behind the life organ is the formative concept, the sense of life. In the perception of tone from the outer world, something is given that as actuality in the physical bodily nature has to be regarded as the sense organ of tone formation. The tone lives in this sense organ. Behind the life organ is is the formative tone, the sense of self-movement. In the perception of sound from the outer world, something is given that, in the actuality of the physical bodily nature, has to be regarded as the sense organ of sound formation. The sound comes to perception in this sense organ, in this organ is active before being the organ of hearing, the sense of balance. A. Life organs that bring the states of the soul to manifestation in the physical world on one side. B. 
life organs that transform themselves into sense organs on the other side. Number one, the entire organism, colon, eye consciousness, the form of the head. Number two, the blood circulation, strivings slash desires, colon, fantasy. Three, the muscle organism, colon, impulses for movement, colon, language. The eye lives initially in its soul states, then in life processes, and the perceptions of the outer world are imprinted into these. Secreting life process, disposition for hearing, disposition for the warmth sense, maintaining, warming, etc. Uh, that's hard to read. It's a bunch of words. I don't quite understand the pattern of that. It's on the bottom of page 204. That's the end of Appendix 4. Appendix 5. These pages constitute an independent and unfinished treatment of their subject and are reprinted here because they are so similar in tone to the content of this volume. They contain an epistemological study based on the senses of language and hearing. And this last Appendix 5 is, the, in fact, the end of the book. From the eye experience, it can be recognized that the human entity works from within to fashion an organism that can, within itself, make imminent the image of an equal yet separate I. What fashions itself into such an organism can be considered as the archetype of an organ of perception. Now the inner constitution of this organism, its law-governed nature, is lost to direct view within the sense world. It is lost to view in the depths of the interweaving activity of soul life and organic life. We become aware of this organism only when we apply it to perceiving the sense world. When, in the midst of immediate sensory life, we do not at first even pay attention to the activity we perform when we turn the content of a perception into I experience, in order to know something about this activity, we must turn our eye away from the content of the perception and direct it toward our own activity. In doing this, we become able to discover soul processes that we carry out at the same time the perception is present as an experience in our eye. These soul processes already do not actually belong to the experiences of consciousness that we have in everyday life. Investigators of the soul find themselves obliged to distinguish between experiences based on confronting the outer world and those based on perceiving our own soul life. If we confront an external object or fact, we can continue to observe it with the same instruments of cognition we first use to perceive it. A soul phenomenon, however, is already over when we attempt to make it the focus of cognition through our observation. This state of affairs has been well described by Franz Brentano in his Psychology, where he strongly emphasizes that the inner perception of soul processes can never become inner observation. Footnote number four, Steiner is referring to Brentano's title Psychologie vom empirischen Standpunkt. Volume 1, 1874, pages 35-36, to 36. Brentano, 1838-1917, was an influential German philosopher who wrote on psychology, ethics, logic, 
Aristotle, etc. His quote-unquote intentionalism influenced Husserl, the creator of phenomenology, while his work on being influenced Husserl's student, Martin Heidegger. Freud was also briefly his student. For Steiner's assessment of Brentano, see Vom Seelenretzel, The Riddles of the Soul, partially translated as The Case for Anthroposophy. Editor's footnote ended. Quote from Brentano's Psychology. Quote, Objects that we perceive outwardly, as we are in the habit of putting it, can be observed. In order to grasp the phenomenon exactly, we turn our full attention to it. But with objects we perceive inwardly, this is completely impossible. This is especially unmistakable in the case of certain psychological phenomena, such as, for example, anger. Obviously, the anger burning within us must have already abated if we were to attempt observing it, and thus the object of our observation would have disappeared. The same impossibility exists, however, in all other cases. End of quote. Because Brentano strictly limits himself within his treatment to what is accessible to ordinary consciousness within the sense world, an important distinction escapes his attention. The distinction between the perception of soul phenomena that occur due to perceptions of the outer world and those that are fused into these perceptions of the outer world. Within the sense world, we can perceive the joy or sorrow we may have due to certain perceptions, but not the soul processes that run their course while our eye is fully given over to perceiving the outer world. These soul processes are not present before perception occurs, and as soon as the perception is over, they disappear as far as ordinary consciousness is concerned. This is because our ordinary inner perception extends only to soul processes involving inner experiencing that is not wholly given over to the outer world. The soul processes that occur while the eye is completely absorbed in an object do not lie in the world in which that object lies. With objects in the sense world, these processes lie in a supersensible world. Perceiving such soul processes becomes possible only when the eye makes use of totally different capabilities than the ones available to it in the sense world. The eye must be able to direct its cognitive capacity to processes that begin when we focus our attention on a sense object and disappear when this attentiveness ceases. At this point it should simply be pointed out that this kind of perceiving is possible. To engage in it, the eye must totally extricate itself from the realm of the sense world and must be able to contemplate the structure of soul activities that take place while it is absorbed by an outer object in everyday life. The eye would have then shifted itself into a supersensible world in which it would perceive the soul activities that otherwise disappear from consciousness. We only want to mention how the taking up of specific soul exercises makes it possible for the eye to shift out of its usual experiences. To learn about such soul exercises, see my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds. Perceiving the corresponding soul processes, therefore, belongs to a supersensible world. However, thinking that remains within the sense world 
must also be able to infer such processes, since the sense world points to them as surely as smoke points to fire, even if we do not see the fire itself. This comparison of Herbart's is quite apt. Footnote 5. Johann Friedrich Herbart, 1776-1841, philosopher, psychologist, and educator, complete works in twelve volumes. It has not yet been possible to trace this comparison. Using the same comparison, Rothsteiner also mentions Herbart in titled The Riddles of Philosophy, Anthroposophic Press, Spring Valley, New York, 1973, pages 185 forward. Editor's footnote end. According to what has been said above, it seems that ordinary consciousness, active in the sense world, can at most acknowledge the supersensible world that has been described, but that it must necessarily be denied access to any more precise insight into it. This would indeed be the case, unless something could appear in this realm of consciousness that can present the soul's inner activity and the perception of an object to our awareness at the same time. Precisely what would the nature of this something have to be? Not only would the experience of a perception have to be present within the sense world, but we would also have to be able to turn our attentiveness to this experience in a way that lets us perceive our own activity during the experience. In the domain of sensory experiences, this is possible to a somewhat limited extent in our relationship to our own speaking. However, hearing our own phonetic tones with our ears is not what is meant, because hearing our own phonetic tones differs in no way from hearing the tones of others. It only brings about a sense perception. We must rather turn our attention to the dim consciousness we can have of the movements of our organs of speech when a tone is to be brought forth. If this consciousness were not present, we could never attain the power necessary to produce a particular phonetic tone. What, then, is present in the soul when a phonetic tone is produced? In addition to the tone itself, which belongs to the sense world, an image of the movement of the corresponding organs is present. This image is in no way similar in character to a mental image acquired through outer perception. The latter is more correct the more it coincides with the perception. But the image of how our speech organs move when a tone is uttered cannot coincide with the tone itself. Indeed, a human being may never bring this image to consciousness then the self-movements required for speech will simply always be carried out unconsciously. However deep within the organism of such an unaware speaker, the same thing must be taking place that takes place in someone who penetrates ever deeper into the speech organism and thus raises the configuration of the organs of phonetic tone up into consciousness in image form. A speaker's knowledge of the latter does not, of course, call into being the reality of what is perceived. What is perceived is a soul process that takes place concurrently with the sensory phenomenon of intonation. In the speech process, this soul process, however, is more or less covered up because the eye is absorbed in the spoken intonation. Under these circumstances, specific exercise is required to turn our attention to our organism's self-movement. Now, perceiving self-movement while speaking 
is not essentially different from perceiving the self-movement that takes place when we lift a leg or move an arm. But since no tone is voiced in these movements, there can be no question of outer perception. That we may also see our own movements, for example, is of no consequence for what lives in the soul as the perception of self-movement. When we are absorbed in the perception of self-movement, a soul process occurs like those that must take place concurrently with an outer perception. But with these soul processes, the perception of a process corresponding to outer perception remains at first completely outside our ordinary consciousness. Only a soul process comes to consciousness, what is actually going on in the body, while this soul process is taking place, cannot directly become an object of consciousness. In the sense of what has been presented here, it seems justified to conclude that in the case of outer perceptions, the content of what is perceived becomes conscious, while the corresponding soul processes remain concealed. In the case of the perception of the organism's inner processes, these processes themselves do not become directly evident, but the corresponding soul processes do appear in our consciousness. On the basis of this conclusion, we can gain an idea of the nature of these two types of perceptions. In outer perceptions, the content of the perception rises on the horizon of consciousness, while below this horizon a stimulus that does not rise into consciousness plays upon the human being. This stimulus is of the same type as, for example, the soul process that enters into consciousness in the case of the organism's self-movement. If in the corresponding case outer sense perception could remain unconscious while the eye could absorb itself completely in the inner soul process, the eye would have to experience something similar to self-movement. However, in this case it would find no inner process causing the soul process. <clears throat> Let us take another look at the process of hearing a phonetic tone. Let us, however, imagine that we are listening not to our own speech, but to the speech of another human being. The movement of our speech organs, and thereby the eye's activity in our own organism, are in this case absent. The other's eye takes the place of our own. Its activity produces the tone. Present in the listener is the above-characterized soul process that doesn't come to consciousness. Since it is present, however, it does confront the tone. The tone encounters the resistance of the soul process and is thereby raised to consciousness. We must now simply imagine that the eye interweaves itself with the tone after the latter is arrested by the soul process, and we will have an idea of how the tone becomes conscious. It is the reverberation of the tone on our own soul process that comes to consciousness in our eye. In this case, the tone first lives with the speaker, then it is thrown back by the listener's own soul process. After having been thrown back, it lives in the listener. If we realize how the tone in question is essentially present, in the same way in both speaker and listener, imagining it 
becomes becoming conscious in the way described here will present no difficulties. And it then seems quite evident that in hearing tone voiced by a speaking human being, the conscious I is present, not within, but outside its own unconscious soul processes, present in tone perception. Let us now compare this to perceiving a sound that proceeds from a lifeless body. The conscious I is interwoven with this sound in exactly the same way it is interwoven with the external tone. It must therefore become conscious in the same way. A soul process must offer resistance to the sound, and the sound captured in this way must then be incorporated into the I. This is what the process looks like when it is compared with the perception of a tone. However, if we look at it from the realm of the sense-perceptive world, scruples arise with regard to such a view. In this world of perception, the starting point of the sound is a body whose parts are in motion in a particular way. We become aware that this movement continues into the air. The air that has been set in motion reaches the ear. As a result of the air's movement beating against the ear and the nerve organism, the sound comes about in the eye consciousness. One can now easily arrive at the idea that absolutely nothing is present in the outer world except the movement of the body in question and the movement of the air, and that the sound itself comes about within the soul only as a response to the physical movement. This idea is so tempting that it lives as a belief in many philosophical worldviews. It is then extended to all sense perceptions, so that it is said that sound, light, and so on are present only within the human soul. The world outside it is silent and dark. We should not have unquestioned faith in this idea because of the perception of tone of a speaking human being. In this case there is no doubt that the tone heard is, in essence, identical to the tone that is spoken. To say that the speaker's tone is carried to the listener by the stream of outer mediators is thus no mere picture, but certainly corresponds to the actual process. In what the listener perceives is a true counterpart of what is present in the outer world, not merely a soul response to a soundless outer process. Here, too, an objection is possible. One could say the following, the speaker causes certain movements of his or her organs of speech and therefore also of the air. Outside of the speaking being there is, however, nothing present except these movements in the air. Because of the particular character of these movements, the response that comes about in the listener's soul indeed corresponds to the process through which the speaker produced the movement. This objection, however, is not relevant. The issue here is whether that which is eventually brought about in the eye has any reality as such outside the of the eye. <clears throat> and this is undoubtedly so when a spoken tone is heard. Now the connection the eye makes with a sound that proceeds from a lifeless body is no different from the connection it makes with the tone of a speaking being. Therefore we can think of no differently about the outer or inner existence of a sound with regard to the whole human organism than we do about the existence of a phonetic tone. The objective existence of a tone is in the speaker. The listener relates the tone to this speaker. 
In what way does this happen? Certainly, in that the listener connects the tone with the immediate impression, this tone proceeds from a being of my own kind. If someone were certain of being in a room devoid of other human beings, and if a tone were to emanate from some corner, he or she would obviously not relate the tone to a speaking human being. In addition to the perceptions of tone, other perceptions play a role in bringing about a relation of this kind. Now these other perceptions are certainly not, for example, the visual perceptions that we receive from the speaker's form, but rather everything that makes us arrive at the judgment. The speaker is a being like myself, and that the cause of the voiced tone lies within this being, as it can similarly lie within myself. The process through which we arrive at this judgment is a very complicated one and is lost in the multiplicity of experiences through which we come to recognize entities of our own kind in other human beings. When the I finds itself interwoven with a tone, the result of all such experiences is, however, the basis for associating this tone to an entity of our own kind. Arriving at the conclusion that a human being is speaking seems simple to naive consciousness, but is actually the result of very complicated processes. These processes culminate in concurrently perceiving within a tone in which you experience yourself another I. During this experience, everything else is disregarded, and inasmuch as we turn our attention to it, we are focused on the connection from I to I. The whole mystery of empathy with the eye of another is expressed in this fact. If this fact is to be described, this cannot be done without saying, we sense our own eye in the eye of the other. If we then perceive a tone coming from the other eye, our own eye lives in that tone and therefore in the other eye. Now if our eye lives interwoven with a sound coming from a lifeless object, the only sensory object to which it can relate the sound is this lifeless object. If the eye approaches the object, however, it finds that it cannot live within the object initially, as it can live in another eye through tone. It is interwoven with the sound, but not with the lifeless object. However, observation of the sense world does demonstrate a relationship between the lifeless object and the organ of hearing and the corresponding nerve organism. But the same relationship also exists between the speech organism of a speaker and the ear and nerve organism of the listener. Yet in the latter case the relationship signifies only a mediating stream for the tone that is objectively present in the speaker's eye. This relationship, therefore, does not suggest that in it is to be found the objective reality of a lifeless object's sound, and that the perceived content of the sound is only a response on the part of the human soul. The only possibility is to think that also in this case the eye is bound up with the sound, just as it is with the tone. In the sense of what was presented above, then, a lifeless sound would have to confront the listener. The soul processes we have described would have to originate below the horizon of consciousness, and the eye would then live in the sound, because the latter encounters its resistance in the corresponding soul processes. The sound would then have to be present in the outer world, 
just as the tone is present in the speaker, the difference being that no reason would exist that could induce the listening eye to relate the sound from a lifeless object to a being of its own kind. This can only mean that in the case of human tone, the listener imparts his or her eye to the eye of another, while in the case of a sound from a lifeless object, the eye is imparted only to the sound itself. The listening eye feels induced to penetrate through the phonetic tone, but not through the sound from the lifeless object. In other respects, both tone and lifeless sound belong to the sense world in the same way, and the listening eye is linked with both in the same way. For this reason, the relationship of sound to what takes place as air, movements, and so on between the sounding object and the listening human being must not be thought of as any different from the relationship of tone to the corresponding outer movement. <clears throat> the sound must thus be brought into a relationship to the outer lifeless object that is similar to the tone's relationship to the speaking human being. This cannot happen without relating the lifeless object to an inner life of its own. This will present certain difficulties as long as we consider the lifeless object as a self-contained entity. Conceiving of it in this way, however, would be similar to considering the human larynx as a self-contained entity. In order for the larynx to produce a tone or a sound, it must be in connection with the speaker's processes of soul and I. In the sense world, these processes of soul and I cannot be examined from outside. They are supersensible processes. Only those aspects of the human being that are sense-perceptible may be considered as belonging to the sense world. The tone belongs to the sense world. Its soul content does not. What can be observed in the sense world is the movement of a sounding, lifeless body as air movements and so on must be thought of as effects within the sense world of what lives in the sound. Inasmuch as the sound is perceived by the eye, cannot itself be taken to be the cause of a movement, we must assume the existence of a supersensible world in which sound is based, and that generates the movement wherein the non-living manifests itself as sound to the eye. The connection that an eye, through the human tone, establishes within the sense world to a being of its own kind, must in the case of sound be sought in a supersensible world lying behind the sound. When the singing human being produces a sound, we can distinguish first the sound that is finally heard by the eye. It belongs to the sense world. Second, the soul movement, soul process, in which the sound is based. The latter cannot be observed in the sense world, but belongs to a supersensible world of which the human being is aware only because the human being lives in this world. And here the text ends. And that is the end of the book. And there possibly a fragment by Rudolf Steiner. That was the, also the end of section 11.